0: I'm Linda.
1: To... Can I please have your attention? Can you dig
2: it. Greetings, dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast. This is a special episode of The Remnant. We recorded it last Tuesday at AEI to mark, celebrate, commemorate, acknowledge the five. 100th episode of this podcast. I'm not going to do too much of an intro right here. I'll save some sort of post event comments for the close. Um but it's a couple of things you kind of need to know because again it was a live event. First of all, uh Ben Sass, much to my surprise, came into the room wearing a quite swanky gold jacket as part of the whole, you know, uh you know, five timers get a gold jacket thing that we've completely fallen down on the job. Following through on, which is why I don't talk about it very much anymore. Damn those supply chains! Also, one of our listeners, who I acknowledged during the the, the podcast, uh, distributed bingo cards that I did not know about at the event. Uh, um, and uh, just it you should just know that going in, even though I tried to acknowledge it, just because there were times where all of a I would say something, and then all of a sudden I would see everybody's head go down and uh, they would be searching to see if they had it on their bingo card. So that's that. And um, and also, you should just know that, that Ben Sass tends to talk as if he's drawing uh, lots of charts and graphs, which is not really ideal for podcast conversations. I think that's it for things that you kind of need to know in advance. It was a great conversation, uh, both with, with Sass and later with A B and Chris Starwalt and a surprise guest. And thanks to everybody who came out, but I'll save further gushing about all you people for the end. So with that, uh here we go. <laughs> oh my we'll Sun.
3: Uh it's about time, dang it. <laughs> I've been fifth time guest five times already and finally gave me the jacket.
2: So, uh, security keep an eye on Ilya Shapiro because I told him that due to the supply chain crisis, right here. Ah, we did not have, because he's been asking for his gold jacket for quite a while now and I, uh, this is a surprise to me. I, this is your very team, exciting.
3: Your team wanted you to be surprised. Yeah, it's uh, a,
2: <laughs> it makes me vaguely feel unsafe, but. Um, <laughs> Imagine my,
3: wearing it to town.
2: That's, that's, that's my <laughs> Um, yeah, we will uh, give you a remarkable amount of additional dispatch swag if you actually speak on the Senate floor wearing
3: that. <laughs> uh, I've, I've been offered more than twenty bucks six times today to wear on a <laughs> and I am cheap, and even I didn't do it. <laughs>
2: Thank you all for coming. This is uh its humbling and cool, and I got to confess, weird, because uh, I do this podcast. I feel like I'm putting a message in a bottle and throwing it out there. And when I get reminded that they're actually humans listening, it's, it's a little discomforting. Um, so uh, I just wanted to say, and I say this with all humility, um, that the date September 27th is an important date for many reasons. In 70 AD, the walls of Jerusalem were battered by the Romans. In 1540, the Jesuits were founded. In 1779, the peace terms were negotiated by John Adams with Britain to end the Revolutionary War. In 1822, um, uh, Jean-Francois Champillon uh, announced that he had translated the Rosetta Stone. In 1964, um, in a finding that Jack Butler disputes to this day, the Warren Commission announced that Oswald acted alone. And on September 27th, uh, 2017, a date we just looked up about 10 minutes ago, um, the first remnant, was released to the world. Um, uh, I leave it to future historians to decide to grade where that fits in in that list of events. But um, uh, I did not know, also until, or I did not remember until Caleb reminded me a few minutes ago, that of the first five remnants, the
1: three,
2: the three of the guests were Senator Sass. I get, I get accused of laziness in my booking all of the time, and, um...
3: And just crappy guests.
2: Yeah, well, the other guest was was Yuval Levin, who was supposed to be here today. He's so good looking. But Yuval has COVID, and while I do not believe in the uh, conspiracy theory that Jews are trying to replace people, I do think that Yuval is an irreplaceable Jew. And so we decided not to find someone else to sit in for him, um, and we wish him well, and not just because he's my boss. Uh, so uh, we should sort of start. Can I um, take this off yet? You can take it off, you it, can take it off. It
3: came with this, but since it's five o'clock, <laughs> not <nine>, uh, <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't know that that works when I have four votes left tonight, <laughs> but when you and Gallagher were drinking, you clearly covered that much of it per hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I got
2: tripped. Um, uh, and for the listeners out there in the world, uh, Senator Sass, as he is known to do around Washington, pulled a bottle of booze out of his pocket. Um, so uh, what I don't think the public knows is that the original plan that got us started talking about The Remnant was that we were actually going to co-host a podcast together. So I guess the first question is, what were you
3: thinking? Why did you, why did you fire me after episode five? <laughs> <laughs> so like, it was gonna be a co-hosted thing, and then like, I was on episode one and two, then three and four happened. and I didn't get invited. Then five. My frequency keeps going down.
2: Um, uh, I, I don't, we don't. This is supposed to be a fun event. We don't need to get into your
3: voting record and why I had to uh, <laughs> cut you loose. He's always got these scorecards on me. Every time I see him, he produces a little card. <laughs> B minus. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, no, I think the real reason was it was just
2: like there was like ethics rules and also like it turns out that senators are busy and the ability for you to actually like, show up, to align our schedules was gonna be way too problematic.
3: I was just running the math in my head. If this is your 500th episode and you started in September of 17, yeah. you're like every 2.1 days? I think that math works out. That's a lot of Jonah. I agree. So, I, true story. The fair Jessica says every 2.7 days is better. <laughs> um, that wasn't know. meant in the euphemistic way it yeah. I, I simply meant, there's a lot of Jonah.
2: This morning, uh, my wife and daughter just got back from California and uh, they didn't get back until very late. And I told my daughter, I'm sorry, I can't be around today. It's a big day. I'm doing this event for the 500th episode of the Remnant of my podcast. My daughter rolled her eyes and said, that's too many podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's, it's nice to be you know, admired and supported by your family. Um, so uh, we should have some serious conversation here. I guess the first question I have for you is, uh,
3: does it still suck being a senator? Is my wife here? (laughs) Hi, honey. Uh, I don't think I'm allowed to use the S word in public. I see. Uh, It's an important calling. It's Uh It's not a productive calling most of the time. Right, I mean, let's say it this way. I mean, you said the S word, so I'll just stick with it. Yes, Congress sucks. Um, but it mostly does because the very, very small share of Americans that are paying a lot of attention to politics, they want Congress to suck. Mm-hmm. right? Like the, the majority of Americans aren't paying attention because Congress is giving the addicted what they want, which is kind of weird, addicted, tribal whining and grievance. Right? Like the, America is so much better than our government right now but our government is very responsive to the tiny share of people that are paying constant attention. More than 70% of Americans tell pollsters they don't pay attention to politics anymore. Um, And the 14% that pay attention on a daily basis are super outliers in what they want Congress to do, to be a venting spleen of grievance, not a kind of boring place that does a small number of prudent things well.
2: Um, Yeah, like, I'm not saying that the remnant is the entire 70%. But uh, we're better represented in that group than a lot of a lot of political podcasts are, I think, or at least I, I try to operate as if we are. Um, so uh,
3: to get actually, should we can we date a nerd just for a minute? Just Absolutely. Kind of level set. So uh, think about crowd out of the middle on two dimensions. So if you've got an X axis that goes from progressive left, center left, center, center right, whatever we call the right, the crowd out of the middle, and I want to be clear, I'm on the right. Um, but the crowd out of the middle is a problem for a democratic republic and it's very substantial. So 26% of Americans defined themselves as moderates in the mid 90s. They were higher propensity voters than people right and left of them. Today, what share of Americans do you think define themselves as moderates? 7% and they're lower propensity voters. So that's a problem. But the bigger problem is if you add a y-axis and you have it as like um, a, an attention uh, metric, so you've got politically addicted people at the top. You have healthy, normal, middle brows. one Eisenhower and one cheer for politics folks in the middle. And then you have disengaged people at the bottom. What's clear is that both the top and the bottom are growing, and the middle is evaporating really rapidly. Normal people think if they don't want to be addicted to politics and be weird about it, then they have to check out. And that's a, that's a big problem. And you see it um, in, I mean, social media consumption is an easy way to get metrics about this. 19% of Americans are on Twitter. of the 19% get no political news on Twitter. So you're now at only 40% of 19% using Twitter as a major source of political information. That's less than 8% of the public. And 85% of tweets come from 3% of the people. So you're way under 1%, and yet national media conversation about politics and most politicians act like that's the real world and it's normal, it's not, it's a ward. Right? like If you've got 1% of the people that are your echo chamber and they're politically addicted and they're very online and they're very angry, that's a really unhealthy feedback loop. And I think that's what's happening. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of my,
2: my friend Abe Greenwald at Commentary. Um, he's the one who occasionally provides uh, a moment for John Podoritz to breathe um, on the Commentary <laughs> podcast. Um, he... Um, uh, he had the best, I thought, summary of why so many people were freaking out about the idea of Elon Musk buying Twitter. And he said, there are people on this site who think Twitter is the world, so they think he's buying the world. And I think there's a certain truth to that. <laughs> um, but um, so I wanna just blindside you with the thought experiment. I'm not in favor of doing this, but I'm more sympathetic to it than I've been for 20 years. I've, I've written a dozen columns uh, poo-pooing the idea of mandatory voting like they have in Australia and all that kind of stuff. But it seems to me that part of the problem with our politics is that both the Democrats and Republicans have bought into a myth um, that high voter turnout benefits Democrats. Mm-hmm. So Democrats are constantly want to get more and more people to vote no matter what because they think it'll benefit them. It, there's a, there's a vaguely Marxist stench to it in the sense that they think there's this untapped lumpen proletariat that if you just activate their consciousness and they vote their economic interests, they'll all vote Democratic. And the problem is Republicans agree, <laughs> right? And, and so when Republicans talk about you know, voter ID and all these, look, I'm in favor of voter ID, but when they talk about like, restricting voting or making voting more difficult, part of it is because they think that if everybody voted, Democrats would win. And the problem is there's no support for this in political science. So it, there's just no evidence, and Starwalt later can talk about this until he's blue in the face, um, but if everybody voted, there's no obvious reason to think it would benefit one party over the other. And that high turnout elections do not, uh, all things being equal, necessarily benefit or harm one party or another. Obviously turning out your own, more of your own voters than, the other, than your opponent <laughs> is the essence of politics, but that's a different thing. So if you made voting mandatory, The value of a base voter is one, one vote. The value of a middle-of-the-road voter is one. There are a lot more middle-of-the-road voters. So couldn't you make the case, just as a thought of experiment, if you just did it for one election, make everybody vote, it would would get the incentive structure back for politicians to run to the center during the general election after they get the nomination and appeal to where the most voters are. So
3: let's distinguish between the parts of your thought experiment that have to touch our political philosophy and those that are just descriptive Mm -hmm. about what you think would happen. I'm opposed to it on constitutional grounds. Yeah, on constitutional grounds, I I don't even even consider it because I don't understand how the government could ever compel that kind of um, activity, speech, whatever. So I, I, I wouldn't have any constitutional grounds to get there. But at the level of what happens, I think your thought experiment has to also go to, are you compelling it in primaries as well? And are you compelling people to have to pick from among these two crappy parties? Because right now, the last time there was any big data set that I saw on this, sort of, I think it was May, June-ish of 2020, when you ask the American people, are you more Republican or more Democrat, and you don't give them the choice to pick none of the above, mm-hmm. none of the above still wins with a massive plurality. <laughs> people, people interrupt the questioner to say, screw that. I'm not picking either of those idiots. And so it's like 49% none of the above when it wasn't a choice. It was like 28 or 29 D, and it was 25 R. And so I think, as you often say on the podcast, one of the problems is that we have too much fixation on democratic mechanisms inside the parties, Mm -hmm. and it would be useful if these parties were stronger um, and that they actually stood for something and then tried to find candidates who want to advance a platform as opposed to just following personality types. So I I don't know how your thought experiment works when the majority problem is that the primaries produce candidates that are really undesirable and unlikable, because how do you compel people to participate in primaries when most people don't want to be in either party? But to take your thought experiment one, one step further about why it probably would not play out the way the national conventional wisdom is that it would just benefit Democrats. I think about terms that become echo chambery really fast, like hearing Elizabeth Warren say Latinx mm-hmm. on the Senate floor over and over and over, which is just a fundamentally racist term. Mm-hmm. Um, you got a bunch of rich white women who announce to Hispanics that their language is wrong, right? And so when you look at polling on this, about 97% of Hispanics don't know the term Latinx. And when you do first choice and you explain what it means, roughly 98% are offended by the term. Right. right, And so the idea that the Democratic Party or Republican Party sort of focus groups of a few political consultants that are trying to run in front of a presumed base really know what the median disengaged voter thinks, I think they're almost surely wrong. And the experience of people kind of ranting in a bar about why they think, some things that venture toward conspiracy theory sometimes, uh, about what D.C. is doing, but how D.C. is really disconnected from the issues they care about, I think that's probably the majority view, not that it clearly falls for a Democratic preference of a Republican. It is a, I don't think either of these parties have a long-term idea that benefits me and my neighborhood.
2: No, I, I certainly agree with that. And for the, I mean, look, for the purposes of, forget my thought experiment, for my my burning heart's desire, we would get rid of primaries entirely. But um, um, it seems to me that if everybody knew that a that a, that the ba- turn up the base strategy, which Obama really mastered in, in, in 2008, and then Trump unwittingly stole from Ted Cruz and, and worked well
3: in Hold 20- my beer. <laughs>
2: 2016, if all of a sudden people understood that you can't actually win by just turning up the gain on the base, you actually have to persuade voters that aren't already in your column, um, that would be, first of all, that's how politics works for for a long period of time in American life. Um, um, And so that's what I'm getting at with the thought experiment. But you mentioned something else, which I think is is worth noodling on for a second. Um, There is this, fascinating tendency on the left to um, it to think you know you know the old expression if all you have is a hammer everything looks like a nail you have this whole cohort of people this whole generation of people who've come out of uh, the kind of schools that you went to to be honest um who uh not bad (laughs) think that um the way you fix every problem is you just change the language we use to describe the problem, right? Latinx is one. Vox today has a piece saying, the first thing we have to do to wean ourselves off of natural gas is stop calling it natural gas because it's (laughs) it's really just methane. So like, first of all, methane is natural. Um, (laughs) It's like cows make it. Um, at some of you in this room make it, um, uh, maybe all of you do, uh, and, uh, and but there's this tendency to think that you know. Are you sure, he hasn't
3: been in the whiskey. Uh,
2: Latinx and um, you know, or like, I mean, as as listeners in my podcast know, my f- my absolute favorite is getting rid of the word mother and replacing it with birthing person because, like.
3: Because every mom wants that.
2: Every mom wants that. <laughs> like, like there is a well-established finding in the political science literature. I don't need to tell you this; you're the numbers guy. But that most people, speaking broadly, like their mothers, <laughs> and they generally have they a positive
3: motherhood in general.
2: <laughs> <laughs> like they have a positive view of of mothers as a, like a good word, right? And like to sort of say, you know. Let's just get rid of the word, and that will get rid of all of the objections to trans or whatever. It's just the birthing person of all asininities, politically, right? <laughs> and um, And yet this is the tendency in a lot of places, and I'm just wondering, like, like, how do you I have, have no idea where we're
3: going, but I'm scared of the question. what is it? like I've got four forks, and I think all of them get me in trouble from here.
2: so no, but like so how do you how do you like? How do you get politicians from one party to another party to talk to talk to each other when literally the debate now is just about whose vocabulary will win? Um, you know, if if you can't the whole point of talking to people is like you actually have to like use words the other person agrees with. And that's that's communication
3: might have the word common in there.
2: Yeah, something like that. Yeah. So like like um, you know. If, if literally people are making up new language and new meanings for words, how do you like get to the point where you're actually communicating with people and, and trying to persuade people our political argument?
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't wanna be redundant, but I think we just have a massive audience problem, right? Which is politicians don't know who they're speaking to right now because I wish you all weren't sick, um, you know, for, my, for our purposes, <laughs> who cares about his health? Um, but, his stuff about the Fractured Republic in general and about a fragmented media audience is incredibly important. Yeah. Because the last broadly watched stuff in America was kind of when we were teenagers. right? right? Like That was the, was the end of common culture. Our, our kind of classic rock through 80s is going to be the only common music forever right. because there will never be stuff that's broadly consumed again. So again, just to date a nerd for a minute, I Love Lucy wasn't important content. But it was shared content. In the late 1950s, they had a 68% weekly share and a 91% monthly share. My oldest kid is turning 21 in a month. And in her entire life, the most watched thing is, except for a one-off like Super Bowl, but the most watched thing is Sunday night football for three weeks in 2014 hit a 12% share. Think about that. She's been alive since the summer of 2001. And in the two decades of her life, one time for three weeks, one out of eight people in America watch the same three Sunday night football games. Right. Well, why does that matter? It means if you have 2,000 channels, it's obviously better at the moment you're bored in a hotel room and of the five channels you might have had there was nothing you wanted to watch, you'd choose more, you'd choose more, you'd choose more as a short-term game. As a long-term game, people would rather have more stuff in common. And right now, we have a situation where... Politics is not addressing big and long-term questions. And so, again, sticking with you Yuval, the performers on the stage are just trying to steal the institution for their own narrow cast, deep niche purposes. But they're not trying to persuade anybody that's not already in their niche. They're just trying to go deeper with the 1% to 3% of people they're trying to communicate with. So they're not, they don't have an aspiration to have common language. And the Senate floor is a joke the vast majority of the time. And there's a rule in the Senate that prohibits C-SPAN from panning back out to show that the liars who are performing, like, I'll be making a speech, I don't do this, but the people who are making a speech, and they'll keep gesturing like they're so tough. And I'm shouting you down right next to me. I'm rebutting the points that you just made. But the camera frame can't go broader than my shoulders to show that there is no one there. The vast majority of the time when senators are giving these giant gesticulating speeches it's them and the presiding officer, and there's no other senator there. So they're not speaking to an audience. They're not trying to persuade anybody. They don't have a need to have shared language because they're just doing it for the soundbite they're going to cut for direct mail purposes or to push narrowcast to their TV primary base at home.
2: So with C SPAN, I mean, look, I-, I love Brian Lamb. I do too. Brian Lamb's a great guy, truly a patriotic, wonderful American. And I was with him for a long time. He used to write these columns all the time defending C SPAN. I now kind of feel that at least the Congress, letting cameras into Congress was an unalloyed
3: bad thing. I, I think that's clearly true. Um, and especially the committees, uh, because I, I think it's bad. And, I, and I, This is not an anti-transparency point. I'm for pen and pad everywhere, but cameras change activity. All you gotta do is take a bunch of 15 year old boys and girls and put them on camera all the time. And do they act the same way around their friends or do they perform? They perform, and Congress people might be less mature than 15-year-old boys and girls. And so the Senate Intelligence Committee is a very, very serious place. Partly, it's because of the subject matter, partly because it's a harder committee to get on, and so the people who self-select and get selected into it are handling the job a little bit differently, but mostly it works better just because we don't have cameras. There's no, there's no incentive to try to put somebody down with a great quip because nobody's ever gonna see it. So then you treat people in a long-term way. Like, hey, I don't know the answer to all this, but neither do you. You just said something I don't think I fully understand, but let me ask a question that has a little bit of humility. You don't, people don't do that on camera.
1: Yeah, see, I would
2: go a little further, and um, uh, I don't want necessarily pen and pad everywhere either because like, the, the, like all you had were pen and pads at the Constitutional Convention. Um, that was the original smoke-filled room, right? Like, they weren't supposed to be coming up with a new constitution. And you cannot, you simply cannot negotiate a lot of important, like you'll never get entitlement reform unless people can be in a closed room where they are willing to float politically difficult things for their own side about colas or retirement or moving the retirement age. Right. Or taxes or whatever. And if it's, if it's even if it's just if it's not cameras, it's just reported on the next day on the front page of the New York Times, it requires people to be locked into their position in ways that I think is part of the sclerosis that we've got. I want transparency of results. You're like we have to see, okay, this is what they did and all that kind of stuff. But like it would not break my heart. I mean, and this is one of the things that's ruined the parties, is that the the internal deliberations of the parties are all spilled out and controlled by essentially mobs. Um, And so you can't have serious conversations about serious things because you're constantly being monitored by the angriest people in the room. One last thing, because I know I've mentioned it on the podcast before, but um, I learned something fascinating that I think you'll like. Um, um, I listened to the Revolutions podcast, um, the Michael Duncan thing, and um, I'm now on episode 1412 of the Russian Revolution. It's just crazy how long it is. But the one on the French Revolution, which was also pretty long, he makes this really interesting point where he says that one of the reasons why the French Revolution got so radical as compared to the American Revolution is that all of the meetings of the different parties were open to the public. And so you get, sometimes very drunk Frenchmen who are all wound up in political and who are, start jeering at people who say things they don't like. And the, the participants start playing to the crowd to get them to sort of um, be on their side. And, um, and that created a cultural dynamic where the most demagogic people at any of the meetings that were supposed to, supposed to figure out a system of governance um, had the most popularity. And to me, it's sort of the C-SPAN point, is if, <clears throat> if, if you're doing everything for an outward facing audience, um, you're not actually doing the job that you were sent to Congress to do.
3: Yeah, I've, I've only read a little bit about the French Revolution point you're making, but that, that aligns with what I've heard. And it, it stated somewhat differently to tie it back to your point about the Congress's dysfunction right now. America's dependent upon having an anthropology. Like, there's a whole bunch of stuff where we give people freedom about what they believe about heaven and hell and the afterlife and and whatnot. But you pretty much have to believe in sin for America to work. Mm -hmm. Um, And you need to have checks. The, The reason we need government is because individual citizens aren't angels. And the reason why you need checks and balances, both vertically and horizontally in our system, is because the governors aren't angels. And if you agree that we're broken people, but we can aspire to altruistic acts. We can build community despite the Tower of Babel living in all of our souls. Um, We can do long-term deliberative things in spite of our passions and our emotions. Passions are great when they're following reason. They're terrible if they're displacing reason. And right now, we talk as if what was, what was the crazy White House press secretary comment last week about the protests in front of the Supreme Court justices' homes, uh, you know, comments that are clearly violent that are being made? Well, the president just thinks they're really passionate. Well, that's scary as hell. Right. Like, people who are protesting and saying violent things, saying they're really passionate doesn't comfort anybody. Right. It right. says this is where adults should stand up and say, well, actually, you got to discipline and chase in your passions. And right now, the, the impulse toward more pure democracy is an attack on the American system. And right now, we don't have enough deliberation about how social media, essentially, in the algorithmic temptations of our souls, um, exacerbates our passions.
2: Um. Yeah, no, that's, it's very similar to, like I, I've had this argument now for several years with people who just love populism and they think it's great and they think I'm a stuffed shirt for not liking populism, and they eventually will get to this point where they'll say, you just don't understand, people are really angry. And I'm like, no, I, I understand that people are angry.
3: That's when you make great decisions.
2: Yeah, it's like, when was the last time when you were just like blindingly furious, you just made the best decision possible. <laughs> you know, like, if that were the case, we should like like wire up judges with like electrodes. And every time they're about to make a reasoned decision, just <laughs> zap them so they really make an angry like kind of decision. It just, it, it's, anyway, it's very frustrating. All right, so we should do um, a little um, broaden out a little bit and you're on the Intelligence Committee, you care a lot about this stuff. Uh, so I'm wondering, so Joe Biden for the second time has said that we would militarily defend Taiwan and the administration had to roll it back and say, no, 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 Um, uh, that's not actually it. And, you know, historically, our position towards Taiwan was strategic ambiguity, right? That was the phrase. We're We're not declaring one way or the other what we would do because that uncertainty helps us. Could you make a defense of Joe Biden that he is basically walking, talking strategic ambiguity because you can never actually be sure that what he says is actually what what our position is?
3: Yeah. <laughs> didn't, didn't Hal Brand say something about the president's doing these accidental mistakes on purpose? Um, So let's leave a tiny bit of room for the possibility that the administration has a strategy and what they're doing, but I don't believe it because they immediately walk it back every time. So let's say policy substance first. We should absolutely um, be abandoning strategic ambiguity and saying that we would defend Taiwan. Um, The long-term geopolitical challenge of the next decade is the US and Western values, and I mean them broadly conceived. Um, human rights, transparent contracts, free trade, free navigation of the seaways, rule of law, admitting that genocide is genocide. Um, The future is that, our system of Western alliances, Um, or it is surveillance state autocracy being exported from Beijing to some of the worst regimes on Earth. The future, the technology race we face with the CCP, is going to lean more in one direction or the other. And to the degree that it was clear to all of our allies in the Pacific that we plan to defend Taiwan, I believe we would never have to defend Taiwan. If we were lock solid clear about the fact that Chairman Xi, dictator that he is, is going to have to cross 110 mile straits and invade these these people because of a whole bunch of historic Problems in his soul, um, I don't believe we'd actually have to defend it. So I am for the policy. I don't think it was stated on purpose. And I think you see again and again this administration um, walk back things that the president said when sometimes his sort of emotional utterance is better than their policy, but they don't have a policy process to work this out in advance.
2: So I. I... I, I swear, I didn't know we were going to have bingo cards. I don't know what's on the bingo cards, um, but uh, the, someone made bingo cards, because I repeat myself on the podcast.
3: When's eschatology coming?
2: Immunitize the eschaton. Uh-oh, I saw a bunch of people look at their cards.
3: Um, I want to guess other words that are on there. Um, uh, but. Um, uh, please know.: I know mon- I've said this monster b- porn or what it is it you say all the time? Bigfoot, <laughs> bigfoot big erotica, erotica. erotica.
1: Really important
3: distinction between those two. Uh,
2: you know, it's it's like one of the first jokes my mom ever told me. What's the difference Hold between? Hold up.
0: Just, Are, <laughs>
2: nothing you're gonna say now is true.
3: No, I you can't swear go this from is what you is, just said. Is, to is, my mom talked is, about bigfoot erotica. If you knew my
2: mom, you know this is absolutely true. <laughs> uh, she says, "What is the difference between erotic and kinky?" Erotic is when you use a feather, and kinky is when you use the whole chicken. Um, uh, no, but like, all I was gonna say is that- um, There are children here. <laughs> are there other members of Congress? Um, no, I, I
1: was gonna say, it's, it's like, when Your I make- mom used to send you up for smokes when you were young, didn't she? She did, quite often. Um, Have you seen the new
3: Saturday Night Live shtick on the Japanese toddlers? No. There's there's a deal in Japan where they send like two and three-year-old kids out to run an errand oh, I saw some and the story camera about that. follows them around. Saturday Night Live has decided to remake it about like 28-year-old American males. <laughs> <laughs> You've been living with him for three years. You can assign him an errand. Get <laughs> off like 4chan it, and like get you, out there. It's like your mom making you get smokes as an eight-year-old.
2: Um, eight, six. Um, uh, no, I was, I was just going to say, is people think I'm making, like, I'm making fun of, I'm making this argument that Biden has not well mentally now, and I'm not saying that that's true or false. I think there are defensible claims on both sides of that. I think what people forget, particularly Democrats, I mean, I wrote, I think it was in 2011, that when you watch Joe Biden in hearings going back 40 years, there was always a non-trivial chance that at any moment he could start shouting, get these squirrels off of me, right? (laughs) He's always, when he was young and vibrant and bald, um, he he would say uh, just weird stuff, right? I mean, you know, we have to raise taxes because vests have no sleeves or whatever, you know. And um, and like, so the idea of pointing it out now, being you know, like a, like it's elder abuse or something like that, it, it's it's very frustrating. At the same time, there is something inappropriate about leaning too heavily into that, you know, but. So like, I mean, like, how do you see it? Do you think he's up to the job?
3: Uh, I thought you were gonna talk about corn pop, and when you brought up the, <laughs> there the corn ice under the yeah. pool. You went to high school with corn pop. Listen, <laughs> <laughs> listen, um, I, I think it's incredibly important, especially since we were just talking about this in the context of US CCP conflict. We need our commander in chief. Um, to be a commander in chief who leads the process and we need to communicate that we would defend our allies, et cetera. So I don't know that it's all that useful for us in public to go down many, many steps of how he gets to making that announcement versus through a more deliberate process. But I
2: I don't think I want to answer. That's fair. I, I think the non-answer is a perfectly good answer. Um, so I have a question. I'll,
3: I'll, I'll say one, one thing that sort of hints at it. I believe that in late January, early February of 2021, there were two dozen people who had walk-in privileges to the Oval Office. And I think being chief of staff to a president of the United States is one of the hardest jobs in human history. And you have to be an honest broker and yet you have to marshal the incredibly limited resource that is not just the president's time, but his his bandwidth, bandwidth, his mind share. You, You can't bring lots and lots and lots of bad news to a president. You have to have a structured way that he gets he she gets leverage out of a staff. And I think right now they have shrunk that world radically. I think there's a very, very tiny number of people, I think it's single digits, um, that can get into the Oval Office. And I don't think that serves the president well, and I don't think it serves the country well. And I don't think the gatekeepers for that process are wise people. I don't think Ron Klein should be living on Twitter every day.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's a shame that because of just partisan animosity, they refuse to look at the just... You like incredibly efficient and almost statesman-like processes
3: that Donald Trump had when he was president. <laughs> um, um, so one time the president had me over uh, to to brief him on free trade. The last last one. Last president, and I would say, why are you inviting me over to do this again? You know, I'm not going to persuade you. We've done this. We've been through. This. And he goes, Yeah, you're wrong. But I think it's kind of fun to watch you try to persuade me. <laughs> uh, and so they invited me to brief the president for a half an hour, which I thought would be 12 minutes, right. right? They'll be late and they'll kick you out early. I was in the Oval Office for way over an hour, and we're still going round and round and round. And they sent in um, chief of staff came in to end the meeting. They sent in Vice President Pence to end the meeting. Uh, finally, they sent in one of my kids. And it, was like, <laughs> it was like something like right out of candid camera, and she was doing homework in the lobby of the West White. Oh, I businesses. thought like, they sent the Secret
2: Service to go find one of you and yank her out of school.
3: <laughs> and, uh, and that finally ended the, the discussion of trade. because he goes, whoa, look at that, a natural Nebraska beauty. And then we just started doing like, like popcorn about the history of Nebraska fascinating. Um, I have no response to that. Um,
2: so uh, uh, Tim Alberta made this point to me a long time ago that the absolute, um, that if you had given Joe Biden truth serum before the Georgia runoff, um, that Donald Trump was such a constru- played such a constructive role in, um, he would have said he'd rather have a 51 seat Republican majority In the senate because that would give him the ability to say look it's out of my hands we can't print a trillion dollar coin we can't do the new new deal right he would have to it would force him to negotiate with republicans which would give him the ability to just say no to sanders and all those kinds of guys and the lovely and talented ab stoddard who's coming on shortly uh she was the first one to argue to me that that part of the reason why the biden administration got off on such a wrong foot was they thought that's what was gonna happen. And they had no strategy for what to do if they caught the car and actually controlled Congress as well. And so then I I honestly think that history, if history were to do these things right, John Meacham would be known as the Biden presidency killer because he, and I think Michael Beschloss and Doris Kearns Goodwin went can't remember, what, just those are the names that come to my head when I think of liberal historians. You're the new FDR. It's like, you're the new FDR, this is your chance to go big, which was, as just a matter of political math, incandescently stupid, right? And it was like, you look at the majorities that FDR had, or that LBJ had, and just massive and growing. And the idea that you could do a huge base New New Deal style agenda with a 50-50 Senate was nuts. Um, so what do you think about that? Do you think that, that, that we would be in a much better place if um, Mitch McConnell and you guys were in the majority from the, from the beginning of the Biden presidency?
3: Well, sure. I mean, because some very bad things have passed and happened. Um, so that would have been better. But do I think that that's what the president wanted? Um, I see that the brilliant West Virginian has entered the room. By the way, I, I think... I think the whole West Virginia thing is shtick. I think he's like, he's from, he's from Massachusetts. Star Wars from Massachusetts and he's just faking <laughs> to be a country boy. Uh, not Monocle out of my A, a, a sweet and spectacular hillbilly. Um, I think it'd be more interesting, not, not to edit your question too much, but it'd be more interesting to speculate what do they want after this November?
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, because, you know, they're only, two to two and a half legislative moments left in the next six months. And given that it's a near certainty that Republicans retake the House, then is Kevin the Speaker in a Republican House probably? What is the math of a Republican Senate um, I think Mitch McConnell regularly tells people he thinks it's sixty percent probability that we're the majority. And given that Mitch never he, he wants to underpromise and overdeliver, he never wants to say something sexy. My guess is if he's saying sixty, he thinks it's seventy-five or eighty percent probable mm-hmm. that we're at fifty-one Republicans. What will the Biden pivot look like when he goes back to being the deal cutter that he kind of really wanted to be to begin with, mm-hmm. but then had no. strategy is a generous way to say it and no courage to stand up to some of the craziest people in his party and say this is not why i was elected i wasn't elected to hand the keys to the car to to bernie and and the the ways that he's beat up joe a little bit and joe manchin and kirsten cinema a lot are just really strange Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. be captive to 25 year olds inside the west wing who live political addiction, when that wasn't the brand that got him elected. And I don't think in his gut, that's what he wants to do. So it will be interesting to watch him, you turn back to a different um, political persona after November.
2: So what's in the few minutes we have left, um, talk about Republicans for a second. Um, uh, you, you think it's highly likely that Kevin McCarthy is gonna become speaker. I think it's highly likely he becomes speaker for a little while. Um, um, but I also think it's possible that much like Moses being refused entry into the promised land, uh, Donald Trump has one last humiliation of Kevin McCarthy in store, um, which I will admit I look forward to with an unhealthy amount of enthusiasm. (laughs) Um, but, uh, regardless, uh, there's a lot of, um, it seems like, and I don't want to put
3: words in your mouth and make I you- I just got in trouble with my wife for you saying that. <laughs> I looked over here and she goes, you don't say anything. Um, I, I, I want to
2: congratulate myself, because when you said about how Mitch McConnell never wants to say anything sexy, I was going to go on about how like, and that's so contrary to his actual personality too. Um, you, you,
3: should, you should hear him talk about the Prime Minister of Finland. <laughs> <laughs> well, he is smitten. <laughs> uh, she's an,
2: she's a, she's an attractive lady. Um, uh, I mean, she's
3: not Yuval, but she's good looking. <laughs> uh,
2: I mean, we don't talk about it much. We talked a little bit about Sea Island, which is off the record event, but we never ever talk about you know Yuval's period in in, in Canadian porn. But um,
3: uh, uh, he's the person who taught me the term boob tape. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, now I'm going to be in trouble. I, uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to ask, um, uh, but sorry, so what? What
2: it looks like the loudest voices on the right are getting louder, and that MAGA, I think, somewhat. We're going to talk about this in a minute with with uh, our rank punditry panel, but um, that <clears throat> MAGA is taking on a life of its own beyond Trump. We saw this with Kathy Barnett in Pennsylvania, who I thought kind of brilliantly argued that, and kind of accurately argued too, um, that Donald Trump, we didn't we didn't switch to Donald Trump's values. Donald Trump switched to our values. I don't think that's entirely true. Um, lots of people were
3: defending cheating on your wife that didn't use to defend that kind of thing. But um, at a policy level, the single biggest thing I think he would cite from his administration is federal society judges.
2: Yeah, yeah, which is good.
3: And he was a great outcome. But this is, you know, in fall, late, late fall of 2015 to January of 2016, I think his uh, exemplar judicial nominee was still his sister. Mm-hmm. Uh, who's the appellate court judge, who's the only person who's written a defense of partial birth abortion right. on the federal bench. And so I-, I Which you're opposed
2: was... to, I'm, I'm allowed to be on the record. <laughs> yeah,
3: <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think this one's gray.
2: Um, so anyway, uh, what is the, will the fever break or is, is it become
3: ingrained in the GOP, thing? Well, I mean, you used the term populism a little bit ago and we, we just have to, defend our ter- we have to define our terms more, right? Uh, I think, If populism is sort of a refashioned, um, edited up term to mean sort of long-term good of the nation, and you assume there's sort of a common sense realism in the middle of the electorate, then you can kind of redeem the term. But that's not usually what people mean. They usually mean something that's an anger-based majoritarianism, and majoritarianism is not what our system of government is for. Our system of government believes certain things about the universal dignity of all 7.8 billion people on God's earth, and particularly for our governance purposes, the 330 million Americans. And we think you have inalienable rights. We think the freedom of speech, press, religion, assembly, protest these things, things—they're pre-governmental rights. And so if that hymn to America stuff is prior, and then government can only act where it's given specific authorities, then that's anti-populism, right? And so you, you have to you have to first define what it means to be constitutional mm-hmm. prior to where you are in a policy continuum. So if you start doing punditry, and again, I'm not equipped to do what A.B. And, and Chris and you will do, but I think what you're gonna see in Georgia tonight is a whole bunch of Republicans who turned out to vote and say, actually, I don't wanna have a delusional uh, retrospective looking conversation. I wanna have a future looking conversation about what I want the Republican party to be for. And there was a pretty clear binary choice in that election. And I think Kemp's gonna win overwhelmingly. So I think if you you have a two by two, you have two quadrants that are kind of economic conservative to liberal and social conservative to liberal, the two political parties have basically been until maybe the last five years, Conservative-Conservative is the Republican Party for about 40 years, uh, until five-ish years ago. And the Democratic Party has been liberal-liberal for about 25 years. And when you're out as a candidate raising money, there's a whole bunch of people on Wall Street who think that the underrepresented quadrant in American life is economic-conservative-social-liberal. Well, actually, that's only 3% of Americans. It's about 30% of all fundraising, but it's only about 3% of Americans that are economically conservative, socially liberal. The unrepresented quadrant in American life is West Virginia. It is socially just a tick left of center and culturally somewhere between conservative and slow change and reactionary, depending on the issue set. And so I think Trump went to a guy in a bar kind of posture about a lot of issues that captured that West Virginia quadrant pretty well, but none of it was actually natural to him. So I think a lot of the impulse for that underrepresented quadrant is out there structurally in American life because these two political parties speak to two different quadrants. And Trump became the incarnation of it for a while, but I I don't think it's likely that a guy in his 80s owns that movement forever.
2: So is it me, or is it like, this is what you get when James Madison works at McKinsey? (laughs) Uh,
3: (laughs) That sounds so unattractive. (laughs) Um, uh, It's like you'd wear that coat to spice it up. I know,
2: but but you know, just like the the chart, and the numbers, and data nerds, and all that. Uh, All right, so last question, and then you're out of here. So when are you gonna announce you're running for president? Make some news on the remnant, man.
3: (laughs) That is not the plan, brother.
2: I uh, I know your wife is here um, and she probably wisely doesn't want you
3: to do it. I wanna be football coach at Nebraska. This is like Condoleezza Rice saying she wanted to be the NFL commissioner. She yeah. was serious, so am I, but she had a shot at the job. Yeah. Like, I, don't, I, I don't actually have a path. I mean, Coach Frost has agreed that I could be a grad intern on the offensive staff, uh, but it, it was clear it's an unpaid role. Uh, Condi was actually considered to yeah, be yeah. part of two different ownership groups, I think, and yeah. she'd make a heck of a commissioner. All right, I'd well, like her to be the commissioner of the NBA, and then they could clean up a lot of the nonsense that are part of their politics, but that isn't a good place to end.
2: No, it's not. <laughs> Let's so, get back to
3: some optimism. Yeah, so uh, uh,
2: you have had a long answer about how Trump as an 80-year-old will not dominate forever, but getting back to my original question, do you think that the people, the sort of very remnant point of view that you have, that like the constitution comes first and passion comes second, uh, do you think that we get back to that? And, and if so, give me a timeline.
3: Well, <clears throat> I mean, I know we're, we're at time, so I won't go long, but, but between the digital revolution and a hymn to America, there's a lot to be optimistic about. I mean, the reality is the American people, though we haven't done civics for 50 years, still basically believe some anthropologically accurate and noble things about who we are most all Americans would prefer to have their identity centered in their neighborhood, in their family, in their place of worship, uh, in their voluntary associations, and in their local entrepreneurial efforts, both for-profit and social entrepreneurship. Most people want that. They want one cheer for politics. That right now, we don't have the habits of information consumption to let those people be represented very well right now, but I think that the sort of substructure is strong And we're going through a revolution which is radically changing the nature of human existence. Right? There's no singularity nonsense that's ever going to happen. We're never going to become disembodied beings who upload our consciousness into the internet, but- Have you met Mark Zuckerberg? (laughs) Because he seems like he's already
2: there and he just wants to create the meta stuff to get everybody else to join him. Anyway. Yeah,
3: yeah, there's a lot to say there. Um, But we are gonna build a new set of institutions. It is inevitable, especially it's inevitable if America survives, if a (laughs) republic survives. We're gonna build a set of hybrid institutions. The vast, when, when urbanization and industrialization and mass immigration led to the rise of cities between 1870 and 1920, it felt like America was gonna die and it felt like community was really hollow and there were drunk Irish kids passed out everywhere in the streets. Cities seemed uninhabitable, uninhabitable between 1870 and 1920, uh, sorry, 1870 and 1890. Between 1890 and 1920, we rebuilt a lot of social capital for urban places that wasn't the same as New England town villages, but it was American social capital. There was a healthy local communitarian Tocquevillianism. Um, And we built these new institutions for places that were slightly more anonymous in cities than the thick community and sometimes stultifying small community of very tiny places where you didn't have a lot of relationships. I believe we will build, rebuild that kind of social capital with a wave of new institutional foundings for the era of the digital revolution. But it's, they're gonna be hybrid institutions. You're not just gonna take institutions we have now and slap a digital component on them. We're gonna build new kinds of institutions. And one of the things that needs to happen is obviously massive education reform, both K-12 and higher ed, because the institutions we have right now are still built on a factory model that assume people are like cogs, and we're not, our kids are plants and they need to grow, and they need to thrive, and that requires all sorts of a different ecosystem. So I think there's lots of good stuff that's gonna happen, but politics is not gonna lead most of that reform and revival.
2: So I'm just psyched, because he said, if we survive. Um, so that, that's, that's a, that's, that is the, 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 the branch I will cling to here. Everyone, please give a round of applause to Ben Sass. Well, I want to be very clear about this. These are two of my favorite people and favorite pundits and all of punditry. Um, there are, I've been asked by a bunch of people why other fan favorites, and these two are definitely fan favorites, um, weren't here. And mostly it has to do with the frugality of the dispatch. Um, because these guys live in town. And um, so like at some point, maybe for the thousandth episode, we'll bring in Charlie Cook and... Um, um, and Kevin Williamson and, and who knows who else, um, maybe Matt Ridley from England, just so we can have a really expensive guest. What does that make us, the best of what's around?
4: I know, we're just no. like, we're <laughs> just <laughs> pathetic I, I locals.
2: As these guys can attest, when we first had the conversation, you guys were two of the, two of the first four names that we said we had to have. Um, and uh, um, I assume these people need no introduction. Um, if you listen to the podcast, if you're here, you know who they are. Um, Although I want to say again, I always, I've referred to AB as a lovely and talented AB Stoddard for years, and I got blowback from a commenter at the dispatch about how sexist this was, or maybe it was on Twitter. Um, and I just it, it still rankles me that you can't say someone who's lovely and talented is lovely and talented without it seeming like you're sort of othering or diminishing with somebody or something like that. Um, so I stand by it, and I repeat it all the time now with a little more, Vigor um, than I used to. So um, uh, let me just start since we're in rank punditry mode. Um, and thank you again for doing this, both of you. Um, so we are, it looks like if, if trends continue in Pennsylvania, that we are going to have a moderate uh, Democratic Jew running <laughs> against a liberal Republican Muslim for the uh, Senate seat in Pennsylvania, discuss. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you first.
4: <laughs> well, um, is this on? Can you guys hear me? Okay. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, McCormick's in the hunt, so we'll see what happens. Yeah, I think Oz pulls it out, but um, it, it, the Fetterman thing is just, you know, that's the big X factor. He has a serious heart condition situation uh, that being on the campaign night and day through the summer and fall, you know, will, ch- will challenge. Um, uh, and he um, has this kind of, he, he paints himself as a moderate and a progressive at the same time. So he's sort of done a good job, right, of, of being a Rorschach test and being kind of something for everyone he plans to go you know, deep into Trump country in Pennsylvania and there's no one he won't talk to. We'll see if that actually pans out. There are, you know, Sarah Longwell's focus groups are really interesting about him, that there are definitely people that just, um, they love him. And so that's the difference. They, no one loves politicians anymore except for Trump, right? They love him. And so Federmania might afflict like 13 people in Pennsylvania, but maybe it, maybe actually it's, it's real. Maybe it's more than that. And, and they're not just in these focus groups, and it, it ends up being a thing. Um, I think that you can't look at Oz's standing without looking at the Mastriano factor. And so if, you, if, if he becomes um, a, a down-ballot menace and he depresses votes um, among these like Republicans who are just fed up, hands in the air, this is Pat Toomey's seat, this is a winnable race, Republicans could have held their opens in a, in a wave election, but you had to go with this freak, um, and they sit it out, that's really bad for Oz, and that could happen in, in pretty good numbers. Or they rebel and actually vote for Josh Shapiro. So that, that's the, the Democrats. So that's, um, I think, the X factor. It's like, we're not even really going to be atten- pay that much attention to Oz. We're all going to be looking at Fetterman and Mastriano, is the way that, sort of the prism through which I see it.
1: Well, first of all, truth is an absolute defense, and since AB is both lovely and talented, then you are always safe in this way. Um, And I would also like to say congratulations. This is such a wonderful thing, and I'm going to get an exemption to the Goldbergian moratorium on compliments uh, because this is really cool, and this podcast started and happened at a time that was important. The timing was propitious. The moment was good, and I was told by a person in an airport not too long ago that they thought of themselves as a remnant conservative and I said, "Ooh, like my friend Jonah's podcast." Oh, okay. Well, whatever. Uh, li- little little platoons. There are dozens of That's us. Dozens. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I said, "Hey, give me back my pork rinds." <laughs> um, but but uh, you have made a difference, and this podcast has made a difference. So congratulations to you. Thank you very much. Um, so I am not as. Sanguine about uh Memedaz's chances, uh, as many people are. I think that there are a lot of votes to be counted. I think that the where the votes are to be counted, uh, that McCormick is still very much in this. We don't know what the consequences are going to be out of the uh, dated mail. Ba- I love nothing I love more than Republicans debating mail ballot rules uh, <laughs> and filing lawsuits. Uh, it's uh, it is condign punishment. Um, so that's that part. And then the other part is, I think that if I were Fetterman, I would be looking, I would hope that Oz got through. And then I would think about all those Kathy Barnett voters. I would think about, not that they would vote for me, but that they would stay home. Now, in that way, uh, Mastriano, who is just as nutty as a peach orchard boar, uh, helps Oz, if Oz is the nominee, because a lot of those folks will come out to vote for Mastriano. Uh, they will turn out for him because he will try to steal elections. He will do, he will, he will do it all. Um, so that may turn them out to a certain degree. Uh, he will be a net terrible drag on the ticket, of course. But the problem, if you're Oz, is this subgroup of voters, and you and Sass nailed it. These people predate Donald Trump. Donald Trump did not invent the sort of eschatological, populist, you know. Uh, they, uh, Christine O'Donnell got there on her own. And <laughs> on a <Yeah>. broom. <laughs> not, <laughs> not a witch, not a witch, Jonah, you know it's true. But uh, isn't it exactly what you'd expect a witch to say? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> right. Does it float? <laughs> um, so the, those voters do not want a Muslim, moderate, de-squishy, newly reinvented kind of celebrity politician. That's not where they hang out. So Oswald will have serious problems with those voters and convincing them. And I think the Pennsylvania primary is very significant because it was the first um, sort of, uh, it was sua sponte. The revolt against Trump among the MAGA base happened on its own. It was organic. It was explicit and intentional. And that was different. And then in the same day out in Idaho, uh, what was her name? Janice McGeechen who was yeah, the, yeah. Uh, lieutenant s- the lieutenant governor who had primaried her boss. She got thrown out on her McGeechen And <laughs> so I, I, I think, well, I'll, I'll shut up, but I think it's going to be real interesting to watch. Um, I
4: might just add one thing, which is that I understand that Kathy Barnett is more pure MAGA, and uh, Oz is being forced down the throat of of this Trump voter who thinks I have to go with Trump. He endorsed him, but really, they—I mean, she was a spoiler for McCormick. In the end, I don't think he gets that close. If you add Kathy mm-hmm. and, and and Mehmet's voters, they're like in the pro-Trump camp. So it is the larger portion of the primary electorate of Pennsylvania.
1: I think, I think absolutely. But I think if Kathy Barnett had not run, Mehmet Oz would have easily won. I think Right. Would, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, so,
4: okay, so, okay. Right. so so McCormick survives and could actually in the end like pull it out, yeah. even though it's, it's a spoiler thing. But, but, but you're right, she could turn on him and on Oz, and that could be a factor. Or just a be, huge factor. be
1: spongy underneath, like right, a little rotten right. under, the, under the planks. This is exactly
2: what I was hoping to have happen is that I wouldn't have to do anything. (laughs) Um, Just drop the hockey puck. Um, I I know we're supposed to do rank-punditry thing, but uh, since SAS did all the high-minded stuff, I fear we should make at least one high-minded point before we leave Pennsylvania. Um, I got no problem with politicians doing politics, right? So like, in the before times, if, you know, like I remember my father-in-law was listening to Rush Limbaugh and gave money to Al Sharpton to screw with the Democratic primaries, right? I, I get all that, right? Um, and that, that sort of thing has happened since time immemorial in politics, where members of one party tried to influence the primaries of the other party to get the most beatable candidate. So, but it turns out, if I have this right, is that the Democrats actually spent more on Mastriano than like Mastriano did um, to get him elected. And, or get them nominated. And the difference to me is, um, like, you can't simultaneously play the democracy is under threat. This is, these people who are practitioners of the big lie are an existential threat to the future of our country and to faith and democracy. They are a neo-fascist movement. Basically, you know, anything that Nicole Wallace says on any given night, right? <laughs> and, and at the same time, maneuver to get them closer to power. So it's, it's different than trying to pick some whack job than who just is gonna be a bad Republican candidate. Isn't there something, like, this is, this, is, this is sort of my problem with the rhetoric from both Republicans and Democrats these days, is they, they play these existential crisis games about how dangerous and terrible it will be if the other party wins, and yet they put partisan interest ahead of um, doing the fundamentally right thing. So if you believe these things about Mastriano, cynically trying to get him nominated just because it makes it easier for Shapiro, strikes me as categorically different. Am I, am I, am I not thinking about no, that No, right?
4: I agree with you, it, it you know, helping run, run like pro Todd Aiken ads in the primaries, but you know Claire McCaskill another Senate term right. is pretty shrewd. You know this; they have done this forever. But you're right; we're in a different place now, where he's basically promising to steal the election in 2024 in a massive battleground state, and it is really scary that you would try to bolster his chances to put him closer uh, into that job. And he could he could win. We don't know what's going to happen. So it is a different. It, the stakes are higher, and it's a different game. And and it is true you have to you have to. You have to put your money where your mouth is. And all throughout the last year and a half, Democrats have not, on the issue of the threat to democracy, they've said, we're going to promise you this voting rights bill that they knew wouldn't pass. Then they said the bill in Georgia is all about voter access, i.e., voter suppression. It was never about that. It was about vote casting and vote count. I'm not vote casting, but vote counting. It was always about Jody Heiss, just like Mastriano promising to cook the books and steal the election if he becomes secretary of state, it was never about access. And so they all along, they have, they've you know, d- done like this rhetorical dance about the, the threat that in, went, went on nine out of 10 of their points, I agree with, but then what they do about it is, um, it's like we're back at small ball and the stakes are low.
1: Uh, Nancy Pelosi could have uh, convicted, Donald Trump could have impeached and had Donald Trump convicted uh, with, uh, on his second impeachment if she would have acted in the first 48 hours and written up an impossible-to-vote-against mm-hmm. kind of article of impeachment that Republicans would all want to vote for. But she didn't do that because what she wanted was an article of impeachment that Republicans had to vote against, mm-hmm. right? She wanted the bad vote. What's the purpose of the Roe legislation? To get votes that they can use, not to pass legislation, but to get the votes. And I would say, look... <laughs> The um, both parties I'm very fortunate to get to have been born and live uh, uh, at the best time in the best place in all of human history, we are killing it like it is awesome, Uh, we have mostly eradicated the problems that have plagued our species for 100,000 years uh, and are doing great. But both parties tell me my country is about to fall and then it's almost over and that it's a catastrophe. And then yet, as you say, never take the next logical step, which is to mitigate some of their own success. Uh, and, and actually, it doesn't even mitigate their success, their perceived opportunities for success by putting, as uh, John McCain would have said, uh, what was it, uh, country over party. And it's hard to do. Uh, the primary electorate won't like you if you do it. If you do the thing where you don't take every possible advantage, they're gonna burn you later, so they take every possible advantage, and uh, it's a hell of a thing. Yeah, I know McCain said that, but Steve
2: Schmidt tweeted something the other <laughs> not, We're not going there, we're not going there. Um, so,
0: all
2: right, so after J.D. Vance won in Ohio, the conventional wisdom was, it's Trump's party for as far as the eye can see, and today, voting is concluding soon-ish, um, in the Georgia primary, and unless everybody is absolutely wrong about everything, it looks like Kemp is going to run away with it, right? So in the wake of the, if that's the case, where, which is closer to the truth? Is that this is a sign that Trump is losing his grip and has lost his grip, or, is it a, um, or was the J.D. Vance interpretation right?
4: I'm going with both. So I refuse to believe if Jody Heiss beats Raffenberger or runs him into a runoff tonight for Secretary of State in Georgia and then wins the runoff and Herschel Walker cleans up that Trump has no influence. He you know, he he did a dumb thing. He picked a popular incumbent incumbent governor to put on the top of his enemies list, who was able to shrewdly pull out every shit and just crush David Perdue. It was it's just been sad. We'll find out the final numbers later. But um, to the point where David Perdue was so demoralized he didn't really know how to run a campaign um, And uh, against him. He had actually at one point told Kemp last year, I'm not going to do this. Um, so it doesn't mean Trump's not going to have any success in Georgia tonight. It doesn't mean that he's not going to have success um, in several places it, this season. Uh, his his highest profile target, he couldn't take him down. But this idea that that means that that All the Republicans of Georgia, which is such a bellwether for the nation, are just wanting to just move on and not talk about the past. is a joke. He still has a massive influence on the party. Um, He basically controls the RNC and, um, you know, could win, as all of you've discussed, and we probably have before, you know, in a plurality in 2024 in the nominating contest. I mean, just this idea that, like, he's been run off the road. Yeah, Ted Cruz is picking different horses from him. You know, Josh Hawley, whatever. You know, some some people are getting their backup. Mike Pence swoops in at the last minute to, like, back, you know, Kemp, a winning bet, whatever. I, I don't really see it as, like, a, a diminution of his influence. I think he's, he's... He lost some influence because he lost, and then he was off Twitter, and he was a bad guy for, like, two days because of 1-6. He pretty much still has a lot of influence. So I'm kind of... I see the separation that those in the party are trying to find, but an incumbent popular governor is different than, like, who he picked in the Senate race in Pennsylvania. You know, it's just a different, and he was able to pick Herschel Walker, who could, he, he could have a rough general election campaign. He probably is beloved enough in Georgia to overcome his liabilities, but, you know, it, it's, um, it, anyway, I, I think that uh, Trump still has a really strong hand.
1: Uh, Herschel Walker needs to find Joe Biden's basement, uh, go into it, <laughs> no. uh, stay there, and he will win resoundingly. It's a bad, yeah. day, you know. Yeah. Uh, the the problem for <laughs> uh, the problem for Raphael Warnock is he's not just a Democrat in a Republican state. He's a liberal Democrat in a Republican state. He's uh, he's playing way out of position. Walker is well known and popular. He just has to do nothing, and he and he should roll in. Now he's got.
4: What if he answers questions like he did yesterday when uh, he yeah. said that Trump never said the election was stolen? You better find that basement The basement is calling. The basement (laughs) is
1: calling. It's cool and it's damp. You just get down in there. It's very (laughs) comfortable. Down there. It's very comfortable. Um, And there's this great toy train set on the floor. (laughs) It's lovely. It's lovely. Um, Next stop, Wilmington. Um, I I think now uh, Ted Cruz should start driving a hearse to all of the <laughs> events he does with his endorsees. Because now you can really tell when somebody's sucking wind, because Edward Rafael Cruz shows up <laughs> right at the end. Uh, this is That's my guy. so
0: true.
1: Cool. Uh, he should come with like a Holocaust cloak and a side. <laughs> exactly. I've done view. Uh, exactly. I think Josh Mandel is great. <laughs> I know. It's so, so weird. So, um, look, Donald Trump is as I wrote uh, in the dispatch, please subscribe. Uh, as I wrote in the dispatch, I said that Donald Trump is the mascot, not the manager, right? He is a talisman, right. he is their symbol. They lift him high because he makes the heads explode. He upsets the right people, all the stuff. But when it's not convenient for that part of the party's use, they don't use him, mm-hmm. right? They don't do it. Um, that McGeachin race in Idaho, I think was really telling. This was an endorsement, an explicit endorsement, all of the stuff, and she lost by 30 points. She got blown out. And it looks like Purdue is gonna get blown out. Now he, of course, is a especially terrible candidate, right? Purdue is like a universally stinko candidate who got by previously because of a famous name and whatever. But anyway, I think Donald, here, I think uh, Yuval Levin, peace be upon him, uh, wrote that Donald Trump, is, going to become, is becoming the leader of a faction of the Republican Party. And I think what we see is that he is becoming the leader of a faction of, that, of the Republican Party, but even within that faction, they're willing to go against what he wants to do. They're willing to disobey him. Um, and by the way, I want it to be on the thousandth uh, remnant bingo card that these, was the one thing that the Democrats The media and donald trump can agree on is that all stories should be about donald trump right Right. that every political story is about donald trump and they ain't and that is uh that is an unfortunate uh, that's an unfortunate truth and it will just have to it will take time to get beyond that so uh i know this is a controversial point of view
2: but like there are people who advanced the theory that Donald Trump does not always do what is in his own political best interest. Whoa, <laughs> And um,
1: let's check this out.
2: <laughs> if, um, things got deep. Uh, so uh, it seems kind of obvious to me that like when you talk about the diminution of his role in the party, the single most limiting thing that he did was insisting that everybody has to talk about how he didn't lose, right? If he could get out of his own head about that, and actually talk about party building and, and picking. He doesn't have to. I mean, again, as you've all all pointed out, he didn't have to endorse anybody, right? But he decided to endorse people almost entirely on the criteria of, um, you know, who is the most, you know, extreme head past the sphincter ass kisser, or. Um, or who is the the most committed to saying the election was stolen thing, right? And if he had just stayed quiet or just picked his battles, um, you could say he was actually still
1: truly the leader of the party, right? I think we would agree that the Trump success rate is uh, a, a bit of flummery, right? He didn't endorse in against Mike Dewine. He should have endo- like if if he were no, no, if right. he if he were true if he were true to his stuff, he would have picked uh, Jim Renese to run against. No, wait. I get I always get Lou Barlet. No, that's right. Yeah,
4: Barletta, Pennsylvania. Okay, Renacci, so he you know, to. so he would have yeah. picked
1: he would have picked no. to run against him, but he didn't. So he cherry picked through. JD Vance looked smart, um, and he didn't need to endorse in Georgia, right?
4: I, look, I'm not saying, first of all, he, he's not really big on strategy, as we know, um, uh, and um, and I'm not saying he's the head of the party, and I'm not saying that he's going to have a great um, season of endorsements. I'm saying that his ability to infiltrate, I mean, to sort of um, penetrate the big lie into his flock of <laughs> believers has been so powerful, they are running all over the country they are plan if they're not running for public office, they want to be poll watchers and volunteers, and they're listening to Steve Bannon's podcast. And it is going to have a huge effect on us for years to come. And it's not, it's no small thing. Of course, he wasn't gonna like try to be a party builder, mm-hmm. but he's that's all he talks about. He doesn't want to talk about the wall or anything else anymore. He only wants to talk about that because he's animated by grievance and this is his number one, this lie. Is the best thing he has going to escape a loss. So he, he focuses back on it all the time. It's the central theme. And so you, it, that's my my concern is that his influence is still spreading because people are going, they're coming into the party because of it, they're getting active because of it, they're voting because of it. And that's the same are, people are
2: leaving the party so, because of it. Right. I, mean, so. I don't
4: think unfortunately it's that many, but we'll see. We'll see at the end of the season. I, I think he still comes out of twenty twenty-two. Um, even with a a mixed record, I don't think that Mitch McConnell is going to be able to eradicate Trumpism in the midterms, which he wanted to do. I think he still starts 23 with with a big footprint. I mean, I just do.
2: So uh, just staying on this one last bit then, um, you mentioned, which is again, a huge grievance of mine about how Nancy Pelosi mishandled impeachment. I mean, if she was gonna do it right, she would have named Liz Cheney the impeachment manager um, and, and corral people, I agree with that entirely. Um, how much do we think Mitch McConnell regrets how he kind of blew it in terms of his handling of impeachment? Because um, clearly he was making a bet. You know, he I, I normally wouldn't accuse Mitch McConnell of, of being Clintonian. Um, I think the interns are safe in his office. But um, uh, what I mean by that is that he Basically his floor speech was very, very Clintonian in the sense, you know, Clinton said about the first Gulf War, um, I would have voted with the people who voted for it, but I agreed with the arguments of the people who voted against it. Um, I, I smoked pot, but I didn't inhale. His speech was, he did it, he should be impeached, but I'm not voting for impeachment. Um, and if he had actually worked with, if he, he could have lobbied Pelosi and said, if we're gonna do this, let's do it now. Um, do you think he knows that he was wrong? Do you
1: think he thinks that he was wrong? Or, or was he not wrong in terms of his own interest? If, if, the power that you have is the power that you do not use if you are the Senate majority leader. Mitch McConnell can't make... He knew the, If he thought the votes were there, he'd probably done it. But he knew the votes weren't there, so he didn't do it. And, the, you know, the the, the partisan But would they have been there on January 8th? See, that's what I think the difference is, is that if in that moment where America was repulsed, right, it was visceral, we were responding to a chaotic, disgusting, totally un-American in every sense of the word scene. I've told you before, walking among that crowd, the tear gas in the air, what the hell is this and where the hell am I? Like, what is going on? Um, And that moment, needed to be crystallized and hardened and yes i can blame nancy pelosi but i also blame the republicans who didn't say pick up the phone and say let's do it right right let's do it right now because the point about the impeachment isn't just the sickness in the republican party the point about the impeachment is that we don't have a congress because a congress that will not stand up for itself when they come down to break your windows and poop in your wastebasket. If you will not stand up against a president who sends an angry mob to defecate on your stuff, then you have no Congress. And they should have just for, for, like this is Roman Senate kind of stuff. Like if you can't stand up at that moment, then you'll never stand up.
4: But the Burns and Martin book said that they have a quote from Mitch McConnell saying the Democrats are gonna take care of the son of bitch for us. right? And so it was past the buck. It's always past the buck. And um, I'm going to go out there and just tell you that I used to, in every speech I gave, say that Lamar Alexander was my favorite senator. And in the first impeachment, he basically said he was retiring. And he basically said, well, you, the Democrats approved their point. Basically, yes, he extorted um, he's, he abused his power and he did all this, but you know, we'll just leave it to the voters. Meaning he, he, he could not bring himself after admitting that he should be convicted in that trial of voting for conviction. Yeah. And that's, a, of a, that's the theme of the Trump years of the Republicans is someone else can take care of this for me. I just, I totally agree with them, but I, I just don't get any on me. I, I can't deal with it. So McConnell had to have this moment where he just felt so enraged and like such an institutionalist. And his morning speech on January 6th was also quite strong mm. before the riot. Um, and those of you who don't know you know about it because it was an interesting day, but he had just lost two Senate seats. Worth going back to listen to those remarks. But then he gave the speech on the 13th. You know, I've just voted to acquit, but, 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 but. It, it, it's, it's like he couldn't help it. He had to like cleanse himself and give the speech. But, but he didn't have to corral all the votes. He could have just himself Said I'm going to join with these eight, nine other guys. It probably would have ended up being more than seven um, uh, in the second impeachment. It probably, I think, some other guys would have gone with him, like retiring guys, maybe like Portman. But, but because he didn't stand out, um, it was only seven. So I do think that even if you don't win the day and you get and you get to the threshold, so he could never run again. Why not just stand up and be on the record if you're such an institutionalist? But he just gave the speech instead.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, again. I'm happy to beat up on Pelosi, but I think it was systemic failure. Um, Yes.
4: um,
2: All right, so uh, I don't want to just dwell on on Trump too much uh, in the time we have left. Uh, Just broadly speaking, in your—just flipped a switch into the rankest punditry mode. Uh, (laughs) What does the next Congress look like? How many seats Senate? How many seats um, House? Uh, And for Republicans or Democrats or whatever, and— does my dream of Kevin McCarthy uh, falling on his knees and screaming heavenwards as the gavel is just slightly out of his grasp, pulled away from
1: him, happen? I think uh, I would not sleep on Elise Stefanik if I was him. She will. She would eat a bug. Like she will do. <laughs> she will do what it takes to have the job. Uh, so she will sharpen the gavel and shank him with it. Um, <laughs> Uh so we'll see. Um the her problem is the more she tweets about pedos and stuff like that, her footing in the normals, the closet normals uh is diminished and blah 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 blah. So <laughs> closet normals is apparently oh, yeah, on, on the <laughs> <laughs> click your big. <pick>. Um <clears throat> the if you can tell me the price of a gallon of unleaded gasoline in the United States on October 25th. uh, I will give you an estimate on the number of House seats Republicans will win. Um, The recessionary trend is on. Uh, The range for Republicans right now, I would say, is somewhere between 28 and, I'm not kidding, 50. Um, uh, The Democrats are in profoundly, profoundly, profoundly bad trouble, and they don't have an answer there there is no answer for it um and at what happens at a certain point look i if i were to if i think if the election were held today it's probably 35 seats for Republicans, 30 to 30. which 35. is sort of historically normal yeah 28 is the average for first uh for a president's first term since reagan in 82 the average is 28 seats it's a usually a lot of seats um for a lot of reasons now the republicans eight dessert first in 2020 because Biden had reverse coattails. So they picked up a bunch of house seats five that uh, were uh, in the wrong place because the Democrats had had such a good year in 2018, there were no coattails, blah, 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 blah. So is it 30 right now? But that number could certainly go up because the Democrats don't at a certain point, And this in 2006, this is what happened to Republicans. Uh, right when the guy was caught sending text messages to see pages in their underwear Mark or whatever. Foley. Mark Foley, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, that it was like, this is not going to be a good year, but we're going to, it's going to be okay. We're going to hold on.
4: Right, there were other factors.
1: And then, right, so you have high gas prices, Iraq war is going the wrong direction, all these other things happening. And then at some point, the depth charge finally hits you right on top of the head and everybody goes, we're going to lose. And that's when the party <laughs> turns on itself. And so what can turn a bad loss into a landslide yeah. is when the party in power says, we're doomed. And that's when the pre blaming right. starts. And it's like, well, it's actually their fault. And people start thinking about getting situated for life in the minority, or life in the next cycle. Uh, the Senate, I have no idea uh, because uh, that has so much more to do with personnel. The climate's good for Republicans, but uh, J.D. Vance is a thing. So who knows? any disagreements on so it?
4: a couple until about a month ago i was 5347 in the senate republican i'm not so sure now i think that's going down a little bit but they get the majority with one seat um, the house um, i um, i i just i am i completely with both of you on gas groceries housing um, <laughs> uh, the border um, crime it just everything, literally there's not there, it's not just like Republicans wanna talk about culture war stuff, but, but they have, but they're winning on that stuff too, but they have all these substantive issues on their side. I mean, they're just, it's just a disaster. So I think it's a huge wave and no one's safe in a wave. The only thing about the row, the, whether or not that galvanizes um, for the Democrats is, is this, my feeling is the inflation and crime voter is coming out anyway, and you're not gonna change their focus. But does the row thing just add some new voters that come in on the side that we're gonna sit it out? So it's not like they change the direction of the wave, but maybe on the margins, the losses end up not being as bad because you galvanize more fundraising, volunteer, you know, ground, get out the vote stuff, and people just have a response to that in some of the right places, it doesn't mean they don't lose the House and the Senate. I'm just saying that like that, that stops the wave, the intensity of the wave potentially. And again, that's, that's a different voter. It's just like the young people actually turned out in 2018, strangely, and they don't turn out in midterms. That could happen again. Um, you know, people, uh, people you know, that, that voted for Biden and now are so mad at the Democrats and we're either gonna vote down ballot Republican, maybe they don't turn out. and and just don't vote for a Republican for Congress and stay home, or maybe they vote Democrat. I just think it's sort of an on the margins thing that could cool the waves.
1: And I I think, uh, to come in alongside that, so if you're uh, Mark Kelly in Arizona, or you're um, uh, Tim Ryan in Ohio, uh, or you're Fetterman, you have maybe some Democrats who are disillusioned, who are progressives, who are angry, because the progressives have had a bad uh, primary cycle, right? They have not done the... Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has not delivered on the things and Elizabeth Warren has not delivered on the races that they promised either. So the frustration among the Democratic electorate is muted by the fact that if you're Tim Ryan, you're like, hey guys, I'm going to go kiss up to persuadable moderates all over the state and you're going to vote for me anyway because you want my vote uh, for the next Supreme Court justice. Right. So by raising the stakes, I think you're right. It, it will galvanize some of the Democratic base to get in behind moderate or to allow candidates to run as moderates.
2: Okay, so we are, uh, we're running along. You have to leave in a minute. Um, lightning round, does Joe Biden run again? Does Do- Donald Trump run? And if he runs, does he get the nomination?
4: So I don't think Biden's gonna run again. I think it's gonna be a long tortured process of him waiting to tell the country, which will be bad for the country and for him and for the Democratic Party. Um, I think that um, Trump has no choice but to run again because of his legal woes and his, um, his the makeup of his mind.
2: Right, uh, sort of an Aesopian thing. The scorpion <laughs> has to sting <laughs> the frog.
4: Right. <laughs> um, I, I I really held back some other vocabulary words, but um, anyway. So I I think that he runs. It's a long time from now. Health event indictments. All the Republicans in the field are praying for those things. Maybe those happen, but he's on track to run and probably secure
1: the nomination? Uh, I think what Joe Biden would like to do is probably wait until November or December of 2023 and step aside in favor of a selected replacement that he would like to be able to do that. They may try to do it, and if they do it, it will be a catastrophic failure. Uh, it will make uh, Hubert Humphrey uh, look like uh, Ronald Reagan. It will not be a good scene if they try to do it because he just doesn't have that cloud in the party and nobody, nobody in his party, Joe Biden is not a credible threat. Nobody in his party cares what he thinks already. Uh, and that's, that's not going to get better from here. He can't say so because he would lame duck himself. So yeah. he won't. I think, I think for Trump, uh, a man who's uh, uh, explained in a deposition once that his net worth could fluctuate uh, by billions of dollars uh, day-to-day, depending on his own feeling about his value of his brand. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. All
2: right, with that, I want to thank both of you guys so much for doing this. You're troopers, and you are, I was being utterly sincere when I said you're two of my favorite people and my favorite pundits, so it's a twofer. You thank too.
1: You, thank, thank
2: you, Jonah. Jonah. I did want to acknowledge a few people and do a little Q&A. If you guys want to, or we can just go on. Okay, so why don't we... Start with the Q&A, and um, there is, Jack Butler is in the room.
1: What? So, Jack Butler? <laughs>
2: the one and only Jack Butler. We'll have him come up in a second. And also Guy Denton, the guy, the Harry, po- I wasn't kidding when I said he looks like Harry Potter. Um, <laughs> he's very, very on brand. Um, and also the other guy from the, the and the guy, the, 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 the less sketchy ginger of the two gingers at the dispatch uh, Ryan Brown, uh, who's also on the, drive time, right, I was on the Drive Time episodes, is in the back with the mic. Uh, he and Guy are gonna go around with mics. Uh, we don't have a lot of time, so if you could please make your statements in the form of a question, that would be awesome. Um, and uh, let's just go to it. Uh, right by Guy, I think. The Guy by Guy.
3: Uh, hi, uh, to borrow Chris's friend at the airport's term, what do remnant conservatives need to do to make sure that maybe one day they're no longer in the remnant? What can they do to make sure that the conservative movement of the next 30 years isn't Claremont and J.D. Vance and the co? Um, well,
2: first, sacrifice 50 oxes to Baal. Um, <laughs> now, see, now I'm just, I'm worried. I haven't checked off a, bingo. enough bingo cards. So I'm just thinking of what things I say often. <laughs> so I can work them in, I feel really bad about this. Um, Did you know that both parties want to be minority parties? Um, uh, And oh, by the way, I'm really tired. Um, uh, So, uh, uh, look, I mean, I I can get, as a matter of political strategy, I don't know, right? But I've I've long believed that the fight for liberty begins in your backyard right? It's like, and I still think liberty is worth fighting for, um, and, uh, um, ordered liberty, constitutional liberty, yada, yada, yada. Um, and, uh, and so I think that one of the things you can, well, first of all, the most important things in life are the things you do close to home, right? Faith, family, friends, all the, the, the Sassian, Lavinian stuff, right? Um, and if you, Live a good and decent life in this fundamentally good and decent country. Um, it it will make political mistakes and all that kind of stuff. But you shouldn't invest your your the really your real senses of meaning and 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 and, and values from the I, I'm not supposed to curse uh, the fecal festival in in Washington, right? Um, and so. Uh, But beyond that, you know, I think if you have as a standard for politicians that you make yourself heard on it and you you talk about it, that even before they talk about constitutionalism, before they talk about limited government or low taxes or you know how a trieste belongs to the Italians, um, that you focus on politicians who don't lie, who don't, and I don't mean just. Lie to avoid some sort of political problem. Or lie to make people angry, to make the country worse, to demonize other people. If if they're doing that, they just don't deserve your vote. Even if the people that they're demonizing are people that you disagree with and don't like, and that's a really important signal to send out there. But again, the remnant is called the remnant for a reason. Um, and you know the the Solzhenitsyn quote you know, um, which probably is not on the bingo card, but I know I said it often, is, you know, uh, you, can, you can resolve to live your life with integrity. The lie can come into the world. Um, it can even win, but it doesn't have to go through you. And I think that this emphasis on telling basic truth is, is lost to a lot of people, and it's really the most important thing and almost everything else important flows from it. Anybody else? Scanning, scanning. I think people just want to see Jack. Uh, yes, sir.
5: So starting uh, from the idea that on college campuses, uh, a lot of the puritanism, uh, if you want to call it that, uh, is driven by uh, students uh, going after, uh, you know, college professors who want to avoid being uh, tar and feathered. Uh, what can, uh, you know, individual, uh, you know, students do to try to change that culture? Um, it's very similar to the previous
2: question insofar as, um, um, but to give a slightly different answer, um, this might be on the bingo card. You know, the, the hero in the American political tradition is the individual who stands up to mob, the mob. It's not the mob itself, right? And uh, calling BS on mobs when you see them, um, regardless of what they're mobbing about, I think is very useful because most people, when they get worked up in a mob, are actually there's some part of their conscience that realizes that they're just joining a herd for the, for the thrill of being part of a herd. And if you can, um, again, tell the truth against it, I think it's hugely important. Um, I also, you know, I, I used to say this, and clearly I was not persuasive. Uh, to, I used to do lots of talks for YAF, Young yeah. America's Foundation. I used to talk to their annual conferences all the time. And I usually, always used to make this point that just because being a jackass is politically incorrect is not in and of itself a justification for being a jackass, right? Rudeness is never justified. Um, but rudeness that doesn't even make a point is very, almost the very definition of asininity and you see this on college campuses all the time where it's the sort of it's the own the libs thing or own the conservatives kind of thing where just being triggering is its own reward and just sort of calling BS on that i think is 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 hugely valuable um, also just coming to the we have Ilya Shapiro here right who is sort of a sort of exhibit a of a victim of the sort of Mob thing, um, uh, you know, shaming people who are just giving in to raw passion um, and saying, "Guys, slow down and think about what you're saying." And you know, like the best, the best way to defeat people sometimes is just through the Socratic method of saying, "Okay, let's let's actually talk about what it is you're actually saying and doing here, rather than what you just think you're saying." Um, do you really want to live on a college campus where professors can have their lives and careers destroyed because they've run afoul of a fad at a particular moment in time? And and if people just respond to you, oh, you just don't get it, then you say, no, you just don't get it because you can't articulate an argument. All you're saying is, is that you feel so passionately about something that um, your your feelings alone should win. and feelings are informative and they're interesting and sometimes they're valuable, but feelings shouldn't win arguments. You know, two plus two doesn't equal five no matter how passionately I believe it. And part of the whole point of Enlightenment-based democracies is that, that truth, that facts went out. And, you know, I haven't done a lot of pitches for the dispatch, but that's sort of one of our motivating you know passions and reasons why we launched is that we actually think facts matter a lot. And if you, once you stop thinking that facts matter, you just start saying things that you think people, that an audience or a market wants to hear rather than the things that it needs to hear. And I, I, just live your life and don't, don't let other people define who you are based upon their, you know, uh, the, ideolo- the, the ideological passion of the moment. But I don't have, like, start this organization or start that over, get everyone to subscribe to the dispatch, which of course you should. But um, I'm not saying it'll solve the world. Um, Yes, sir.
5: So big three, Asimov, Heinlein, and Clark. (laughs) Who's your favorite, and is there a political reason why?
2: All right, everybody, welcome Jack Butler up to the stage for a second here. (laughs) (laughs) So true fact, when I would often get these kinds of questions, I would say, Jack take care of this for me. Because <laughs> I don't, I, I, I... You have an answer. I, I, I guess Heinlein, but I, I, I don't have a, a great... <laughs> oh, God, you guys are nerds.
5: Um, I, uh... Jack, what's your answer? Well, of the three, Heinlein is probably the closest to your political views. Yeah. But you, you and I and everyone in this room consumes plenty of art that doesn't align with our politics, so that we should have another standard here. Uh, of the three I've read the most, Asimov, uh in the least, Heinlein, and probably like uh, Clark the most in terms of his work. Childhood's End is probably one of my favorite science fiction novels, very unsettling conclusion, and also the basis for the cover of Led Zeppelin, or no, Houses of the Holy, excuse me, the Led Zeppelin album, with the uh, children climbing on the, uh, atop the mountain. Thing so yeah I'd go with Clark I guess with those three
2: yeah and I'm 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 a little enraged I mean, I'm not going to stab you in the head with a ballpoint pen but uh, that I know you've meeting... been waiting
5: to for a long time yeah
2: but no 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 I'm not enraged you I'm enraged you oh, okay. uh, <laughs> you didn't include Herbert because like Frank Herbert's my guy
5: and you know doing excuse was... me I believe he's my guy
2: moi <laughs> ah, <dude. laughs> <laughs> all right. Um...
5: The conver- uh, we're now reenacting the conversation at the end of uh, of Children of Dune when Paul and uh, and Leo the Second are talking in the desert. Excuse me, the Prophet and Leo the Second are talking in the desert about who filled the golden path and who didn't and why. Yeah, I, I can guarantee. You, I'm not
2: even going to look, but Steve Hayes is cutting himself right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, and, yes, sir, over there. Uh,
0: and
1: and if I get this wrong, please correct me. I think President Trump uh, said that, uh, in, in you had, after you had criticized him, he said that you know, he didn't listen to you. You couldn't even buy pants. Correct. <laughs> a- and I'm just wondering, have, have, you know, have you worked on that subsequently? <laughs> I mean, how's that going?
5: May I briefly cut in here? Because mm-hmm. on the first day that I worked for Jonah, I actually had a pair of pants. Because this comment had happened just days before this. In
2: fact, I can report this to Drew. His first day of work here, he did have a pair of pants.
0: <laughs> I have a pair, I
5: had an extra pair of pants that I gave to you, and you said you didn't need them at the uh, moment. Yeah, yeah.
2: I vaguely remember that. Uh, there was so much day drinking, though. Um, <laughs> so, um, I, so I, this has been a spiel mine for a very long time. I want to just be very, very clear about this. Um, we had, as Jack and the test, we had teams of interns here working around the clock on this with legal pads and grease boards and, you know just to figure out what the hell he was talking about. And um, because, uh, just I want to be very clear, I I know how to buy pants. (laughs) I'm not saying that like, it's like one of my core skills, right? Like if I had a job interview, or we were going around raising money for the dispatch, I wouldn't lead with the fact that I'm a great pants buyer. Right? Um, But it's not like my wife would get phone calls from like the floor manager at the Home Depot saying, hi, Mrs. Goldberg, Uh, your husband's here again, trying to buy pants in the power tool section. I mean, like, I know how to do it. Um, And uh, it was, and I gotta tell you, it was such a pain that he had said that. I mean, of all the things that he could have said, because, true story, We were going. I was going on a National Review cruise that was leaving out of Seattle. There you go. (laughs) Is it National Review or cruise? Okay, that's fair. Um, And uh, how many of your boxes are left?
5: I'll make sure that one gets checked.
2: Um, And what's the discount code? Dingo. Oh, so that's the. uh,
0: Wow!
2: <laughs> so, how, how fitting it, it rhymes. Um, uh, uh, and I should thank, uh, the, the bingo cards were um, made by Montgomery Q. Uh, Lay. Le- no, Montgomery, Mon- Montgomery Q. Leyline. And thank you for the help with the pronunciation because I would not have guessed that. Um, uh, but so I'm going on a National Review Cruise and we're in this giant cruise terminal where like 12 boats are leaving at once. And just, it's thousands of people. And I'm on this big snaking line going uh, to go pick up my tickets or whatever. And there are randomly dispersed amongst these thou- tens of thousands of people, National Review cruisers. There are only like hundreds of them, right? Because it's like 10 different boats are leaving, blah, blah, blah. And just out of nowhere, people from like three lanes over would just yell at me, hey, you're wearing pants, (laughs) or congrats on getting some pants. And like, I always, like you look at the other like normals, (laughs) who had no idea, like why are these strangers yelling at this guy and congratulating him for having pants? Um, It was all just very weird, and everybody is making pants jokes ever since. Um, So it's kind of exhausting. OK,
5: so are you comfortable discussing the crowdhammer theory in public? About the pants thing? OK, go on. <laughs> that Trump mixed you up with crowdhammer and, and thought that crowdhammer couldn't buy pants.:
2: As interesting. A, As a shot because he was in a wheelchair.
5: Yes. I don't remember that. I mean, well, that's that's the that is because you and Krauthammer in the original comments. I am one of the people who has parsed these comments, and of, of one of the you names, led a whole team, right? I know I had to, it was like Indiana Jones trying to find the ark in the in the in the desert. Um, he mentions you and Krauthammer together, right? So I could see, and we know that Trump sometimes speaks in an uncouth manner. Uh, you know, I'm sorry if I'm breaking this news to anyone. And so I, 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 this has a, a degree of plausibility to me, but it is impossible to confirm until, that is on the 1,000th episode, when Trump himself appears. That's
2: right, So that'd be, that'd be quite the podcast. Um, <laughs> thank you all so much. As, as you all know, I am not inclined to over signs of sentimentality, um, even though I sometimes succumb to them. But I can just tell you how grateful I am to our listeners, to our dispatch subscribers, uh, to Jack Butler who helped me launch this damn thing, to Guy, to Caleb, to Ryan, to my partner in crime, Steve Hayes, and our entire team at the, at the dispatch. And of course, I haven't thanked them to AEI, who generously gave us this facility to do this and supported me in every way. But most of all, I'm really grateful to you guys for your support and your encouragement. And um, let's grow the remnant. Thank you all very much. Okay, so uh, that's all done with. And um, uh, I gotta say, you know, I, I kind of went into it sort of dragging my feet. Uh, Caleb later admitted that he basically just wanted us to do it so we can get a free bar for open bar out of it. Um, but it turned out to be a really wonderful time. Uh, some really great people. Um, you know, I, I talk on here quite often about what earned success is, which is not necessarily making a lot of money or um, getting a lot of fame, but feeling like you're making a difference in people's lives. And I got to tell you, I got a nice injection of that feeling uh, talking to people. Um, yeah, I know it's obviously a self-selected group. These are people who are really into this podcast, really behind the dispatch, really supportive of what we're doing, what I'm doing. Um, and that's fine, but they, a bunch of you came and I'm really grateful for it. And so are a lot of us, um, at the dispatch and it has, it really bolstered our determination to, um, do more, um, events. You know, we got, we got some plans for some big money-making things in the future that we had to put off because of COVID, but we also just want to do sort of more, um, you know, sort of meetup, uh, more convenient things around the country. Um, we are actively kicking the tires about how to do that, when to do that, uh, where to do that. Um, and you'll definitely be, um, informed, but, um, um, I want to thank again, everybody guy, um, really did a great job helping organize this. Caleb and Ryan did a great job. I said at the front that, that the listener distributed the bingo card. That's not true. Ryan actually got the bingo card from the listener and, and made copies and distributed them. Um, everybody sort of went with the program with the whole thing. Senator Sass, AB, Chris, uh, Jack Butler, everybody sort of, um, you know, rolled with the punches. And, um, and again, I wish I, I tried to talk to everybody I possibly could afterwards. And that was a lot of people, but if I missed you, I apologize. And hopefully I'll see you at the next sort of, uh, dispatch event. Um, and really, from the bottom of my heart, thank you to everybody and for your kind words and for your support. And I'll see you next time.
0: Know you won't. This is a podcast. Yeah.
1: Oh, there's whiskey up here.
2: The other thing I should get to is um, uh, uh, a guy named Kevin Hodge is, I am going to drive past his house uh, once a year and shoot out his porch light because he is the one who is responsible, other than originally Jack, for continuing this No, You Won't, It's a Podcast thing. <laughs> and I cannot tell you. That's the free right? Oh, is it really? Yeah. How ex- <laughs> exhausting it is to have to ask, like, Frank Fukuyama.
0: <laughs> I, mean, I, have to be like,
2: I literally, I mean, as, as Caleb and these guys, oh, I should have signaled out, Caleb, he's our podcast producer over here and much abused, um, uh, where I have to say, like, because they're ready to go, right? Like, we've finished the conversation, <laughs> and I have to say, okay, don't close your browser until your audio is uploaded, and I need you to do me a favor. Can you please, I promise it won't embarrass you. Lots of people have done it. And I have to explain to them that they just have to say, no, you won't, it's a podcast. And it is a soul deadening exhausting <laughs> thing. Um, um, but I don't, at some point we're gonna drop it. it just gotta move on. But um, sorry, Jack, like you have to find another way to live in eternity.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> but to close this off, what I would like all of you to do at the count of three, is say in unison Woodrow
0: Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to sneak yeah, that in. That's yeah, fair, that's fair.
2: That's fair. Uh, no, you won't. This is a podcast. Okay? So, three, two, one.
0: No, you won't. This is a podcast.
2: Thank you all so much.